Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Adventure Games Podcast. This week I am joined by Julia Minamata, the developer of the upcoming text parser murder mystery adventure game, The Crimson Diamond. Yes, you heard that right. It is a text parser game where you actually have to type. Now, uh, some people may be aware of this game. You may know of Julia. You may have played a demo, which is available online. And she has also had the game available at different conferences, including AdventureX and Wordplay in Toronto. And she spoke to me about the game, about a bit of the story, about her inspirations behind it, and also what she is doing to ensure that both old-school adventure gamers and people who might be new to the adventure game genre can get the most out of this game. And I had a great time speaking with Julia. So first, here is some music from the game, which Julia very kindly sent to me, followed by our interview. So please enjoy. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Sharsha? I'm, I'm very well, thanks. Uh, I know it's morning for you and it's <laughs> afternoon for me, so I, I hope I didn't you know, get you up too early on a Sunday morning. No, not at all. It's, it's, it's beautiful right now. It's nice and sunny, so I don't mind at all. Yeah, over here now as well. And you're, you're in Toronto, right? You're from Toronto. Yes, I am, actually. Yeah, uh, Toronto Scarborough, which is sort of a suburb of Toronto. But yeah, absolutely. Lovely. Well, as listeners to this podcast might know, I've uh, I've been there myself. I was there myself in November, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I, uh, I would love to go back. So I'm I'm really jealous <laughs> right now. <laughs> and uh, my parents, by the way, are, are kind of concerned that I'm thinking of emigrating because I've spoken so much about <laughs> Toronto and um. Canada. So, <laughs> but um, we're here to talk about your game, the Crimson Diamond, which is a game that I'm looking forward to. And uh, both Thomas and Laura really had uh, high praise for it. So they played a bit of it in an Adventure X. So looking forward to finding out more. Um, before we start talking about the game, there's one if you could introduce yourself and then say what are your favorite adventure games. So get, yeah. the, get the most difficult questions out of the way first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, hello, my name is Julia Minamata. I am developing the Crimson Diamond, and I'd have to say my favorite uh, adventure games. Um, there's a couple. Well, obviously, the Colonel's Bequest for me is a very uh, major artistic inspiration. So. Visually I, and, and game design-wise, I would say The Colonel's Bequest. 
uh, gameplay wise, I might have to say the, um, the Secret of Monkey Island, the EGA version, that one. So I think I've, I, I can I cheat and have two. Yes, yeah, you can have as many as you wish. You can. <laughs> oh, well, there's so many. <laughs> we Good choices, though, I think. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people use... What's interesting with your choices is there's one Sierra, one LucasArts. Which, <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the thing is, for me, actually, um, it just kind of goes along with how I've been designing the game, um, because I always did appreciate the Sierra art more more than the LucasArts style. I do like both, but I just there's something about the, the Sierra style that I, I really gravitate toward. But the game design of the LucasArts games, are, I actually appreciate a lot more. And when I was a kid, I enjoyed that style more. So that's kind of why there's a bit of a combination. Right, no, no, that's, that's fine, because I still find it, you know, funny that still to this day, there are people who still ask, <laughs> oh, Sierra or LucasArts? And I always say, well, <laughs> both I like, you know, of like course. yourself. I like, yeah, uh, of you know, the, the art style of Sierra, but then the gameplay of, of LucasArts. And even, uh, I spoke to the, the Coles before as well, and I asked mm-hmm. them, and I said, um, were they aware of the rival- <laughs> was there a rivalry? And so well, it was a friendly rivalry, but they all kind of knew each other, and mm-hmm. they would play, I think, softball together. Mm-hmm. So so they, so they even, like, together, they, they knew each other. There wasn't this huge you know, horrible rivalry that they're, they, you know, they all knew each other, got along well. So I think it's good to appreciate both companies because yeah, both, have, both have had, you know, a huge impact on not just the adventure game genre, but on video games as a whole, I think. So, um, and now you mentioned you like the gameplay of LucasArts. Uh, I'm sure, I think I can guess what do you mean. Do you, uh, what, what exactly do you mean? <laughs> the, do you mean the, the death scenes in, in Sierra? Or? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, I I didn't like the dying when I was a kid. Uh, I was I got frustrated. I got stuck a lot. Um, and uh, the whole dead man walking thing, where you can proceed further into the game, where even even though you missed out on a particular inventory item, that prevents you from progressing. That type of design, I'm not the biggest fan of. I wasn't at the time. So when I designed the Crimson Diamond, I keep all those lessons, the stuff that frustrated me as a kid. I say I'm not going to do that in my game, and and that's actually really been a good lesson for me. Cool, yeah, no, that, that's a good lesson, I think, to learn. <laughs> I mean, I suppose when they were making the games back then, they were, I mean, they didn't have anything else to go on. It was kind of mm-hmm. all new and, you know, original back then. But I, I, I definitely agree with you that having dead ends in games, for me, is a big no-no. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I did prefer the, the gameplay of uh, LucasArts as well. But in my case, I played the Sierra games as an adult. I didn't grow up playing them. It was an mm-hmm. interesting experience. I enjoyed it for the most part, but it's definitely, you know, an interesting experience uh, thinking, okay, the puzzles, you know, some of them, you know, what what were the developers thinking? But, right. but I, you know, I can still appreciate it. I still really enjoyed it, in particular, you know, King's Quest Six. I think is probably mm-hmm. my favorite. And then mm-hmm. the, you know, the Needles of Glory Space Quest games and um, and that. So, um, so, so, yeah. So then with... Yeah, you yourself, so you start, how long have you been working on the Crimson Diamond? Uh, that's, that's a bit of a tough question. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently uh, I like asking these tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as tough as the first question, but yeah, that's a pretty tough question. I started it as a hobby project, so it's been something I've been tinkering with on and off. And I've been initially, I was initially telling people about four or five years I've been tinkering with it, but... My sense of time is really not the greatest. And when I actually did look back at old blog entries, uh, just to actually really pin down the time, it was actually more like uh, nine or ten years. 
when I did the very first like character portraits and things like that, stuff that isn't in the game, but it just was the very earliest pixel art style of art that I, I did. And the first couple of little rooms here and there were started just that long ago, which I was surprised by because it certainly doesn't feel that long ago, um, <laughs> 10 years or whatever. But um, it, it sort of, it kind of picked up momentum. When I started, it was just a little bit here and there and I'd leave it, get busy come back and it was something you did almost like a train set or you know one of those big trains that people have in the garages or something just come back to it and you pick up where you left off where you forget where you left off and then you you try to figure out you pick up that loose thread but um as I continued to move forward with it especially I think when I started to well finish most of the art and then try to come up with a story that's when I think I started to pick up a bit more momentum up and especially just last year at a wordplay in Toronto I uh, had to show a demo because I got into the showcase, which I was not expecting. And uh, that really motivated me to actually, you know, come up with a, a set of goals that were very clear about what I had to achieve by a certain time. And that helped a lot. That helped a lot in, in getting me to a stage where I could actually show people what I'd done. So that was just last year. But I mean, it's been ongoing. Right. So, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean, how just 10 years just flies by, yes. which is terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, what have I done with my life? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> but um, so, so yes. Yeah, so last year, it was 2018 that uh, you were in the Wordplay uh, yeah. conference in Toronto. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, so did you did you have the demo ready uh, by then, or did you have to make it ready for the conference there? It was not ready at the time, but the thing was, is actually quite a bit of the work had already been done for that first little section. Um, but uh, when I when I realized I had to get something that was in a state to show people, then that's when I kind of filled in the gaps where there there needed to be filled in. And, and thinking about it from not just my perspective, but from the perspective of someone who is going to encounter it for the first time, what that experience would, be. and that that helped a lot in directing my efforts. And so after that, it, it seemed to you know go over pretty well with the people that I'd shown it there with. And so it's kind of decided at that point to go uh, more full time with it. And, and try to actually get it finished at some point and actually, you know, try to get around to these shows like Adventure X and EGLX, get, get some more feedback and uh, hopefully get it finished in some reasonable amount of time and not in another 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope not. I'm not going to say no. I would never say never, but um, 10 uh, years is as close to never as I'm comfortable with being. <laughs> well, um, no, I mean, we, I spoke to a- Agustin Cordes and Daniel, <laughs> I think, Stacey, uh, and their game took, well, Agustin at the time recording is still working on Asylum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Daniel Stacey mm-hmm. and his team, it took them ten, 10 years for Mage's initiation. So, you know, these things do take time. So I heard the same story when I was at Adventure X. I've heard, you know, people like that, the devs like to ask each other, well, how long have you been working on your project? And <laughs> It's a bit of a pause, but when you start sharing how long it actually has been, then you kind of feel like you're not so alone, which was very helpful, actually. Yeah, I imagine you need a lot of patience uh, to be, you know, over 10 years of one project that you really have to believe in. <laughs> so, um, but, but yeah, no, the, the game seems to have certainly gone over very well. And was this the first time that you showed the game to people or the demo to people at uh, the Wordplay in Toronto? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was completely the first time I had shown it to anyone besides probably just yeah. I think just myself. I had only really worked with it, and to show it in public was scary because it was it it was a thing that was out there, and people could talk about it or comment mm-hmm. on it and react to it. 
And I wasn't sure how that was going to go because it's kind of hard to gauge when you're just developing something in a vacuum what it's actually like. You have a feeling maybe, I had a feeling maybe that, you know, this thing, it, it looks like maybe those games back in those days. I feel like it did. And it plays a bit like that as well. Also, I feel like maybe this is something I could continue to invest my time into. But I wasn't really, really sure at the time until I showed it to other people and I saw them say, hey, this is, you know, this, this is something that's actually really, really, we'd like to see more of this. So we'd like to learn more about the story and, and, and the art is spot on. So when I, when I start hearing comments like that, it did make me feel like, hey, this is not just me thinking these things. It's other people, too. And and uh, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to have people react in that way and feel like you've produced something at a certain level of quality. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine because when you're working on it and you think, am I really the only one at first who really mm-hmm, wants mm-hmm. a game like this? I don't know if yep. other people would like it or will want it. So then when you show it to the public and then they say the same, yeah, no, I've been wanting a text parser game as well mm-hmm. or, this, or a game <laughs> like this. It's, and it kind of helps to motivate you, I imagine, as well to, to continue then. 100%. Because when I started the game, as I mentioned, I wasn't starting it at the beginning saying, I want to make a game. It didn't start like that. It started out very naturally for me about what I wanted to make and what I wanted to see. So when I learned how to make the pixel art, what I wanted to see was art that reminded me of CR games, particularly the Colonel's book. And when I started, you know, when I started putting the game together, just as a series of rooms in Adventure Game Studio, it it felt like, oh, you know, it'd be fun to try to play with a text parser because I like those types of games. And I don't see many people using the text parser at all. And even with Adventure Game Studio, which does have the feature baked right into the engine I don't really see it used very much and so hey you know I'm gonna play around with it it's kind of a fun thing and it's the, it's the kind of game that I enjoy playing most and um, that's kind of all how that started and grew from there so even my initial feeling about it when I started was this is you know this is all the stuff that I kind of wanted to play with but not necessarily something I w- was thinking I could potentially sell or market in any effective way Right, no, I, I can imagine. Um, but then also it's curious because I see kind of in forums as well how uh, some people, what they say is that adventure games nowadays are too easy kind of in a way that you just kind of click and that they, mm-hmm, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of them do want even just more of a challenge or even just something to do. And I can imagine now with the text parser that those people uh, would probably be a lot happier now. Oh, yes, we actually get to type in, <laughs> in this game now. That that's, that it even automatically think more. Um, so, or, I mean, I don't know if to, we can talk about the puzzles later on, but has that been mm-hmm. some reaction as well from people that were happy to see that, oh, we actually get to do stuff in the game? <laughs> well, it ha- it, honestly, it really ha- has been that way. And I was actually surprised. And that's an, an, another reason why it's been so valuable to show the game is because, when I was developing it, I just was thinking, this is, you know, something I want to see. And then when I showed it to other people and they said this is something that they wanted to see too, uh, that really reinforced the the fact that my efforts might be something that would be appreciated. And it's actually what I hadn't anticipated when I was showing it to people was younger people who didn't grow up with, with this style of game or people like yourself who didn't come upon mm-hmm. the Sierra games until much later. And then come on the game and, and they've never or they're not familiar or have never played a text parser game and when they sit down in front of the game it takes a little bit of, uh, of figuring out for them and I did uh, include a tutorial room in the game to really help people from the ground up who have no background with this style of game and watching them 
try it and and understand what, what they need to do eventually and start get, having fun with it and experimenting and just seeing them smile when they try something that that, that uh, the game has a response for is really 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 cool and and it makes me feel like maybe my audience that it could be people who haven't played this style of game before I'm, I'm kind of make trying to make efforts to make it um, easier to play than those games but at the time not really thinking maybe it's something that could appeal to people who aren't familiar with this style of game but the more I show the game, the more uh, kind of faith I have in the idea maybe the style of game is something that could, you know, potentially come back and and be enjoyed by people. And, and people really haven't changed so much since, since you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, exactly. No, that's an interesting thing you mentioned, how younger people uh, were getting into the game. Because I specifically asked uh, Laura and Thomas in their AdventureX review, saying, that did they think people who hadn't grown up playing these sex parasite games would it be able to get into it and they both immediately said yes so, oh that's great uh, oh so, so happy yeah that's what they both now i don't know i know thomas grew up playing i think sierra games i'm not sure about laura because i i, I was a late bloomer i started later i'm not sure i'm necessarily mm-hmm. younger but I, <laughs> but i did start you know kind of later so um but yeah so that's you know kind of you know make make me happy to to hear as well but um, so, and then you showed it in 2018 in Toronto, the Wordplay mm-hmm. Conference, and then this past year, November 2019, you were at the Adventure X. Yes. yes. Uh, so you got, and you were, said you were at uh, the EGX as well, I, I believe, or another conference. Um, EGLX was. Okay, yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's, it's confusing because there's EGX and then there's EGLX. EGLX, yes. Yeah, and EGLX is in Toronto. I know that happened in just in October, so just a few weeks before Adventure X. Right, right, okay. And th- did you make any changes to the demo uh, in that in that year? Then in that time from Toronto in the wordplay to EGLX to Adventure X, or was it the same oh, demo? Oh, for sure, I changed it. In fact, I changed the demo between EGLX and Adventure X. So within the oh, past, wow. <laughs> in the interim weeks between uh, in, between that, you know the two and three weeks between those two shows, I did uh, make some changes based on how you know watching people play it and that's another reason why showing the game is extremely valuable to me is it's sort of like uh, you watch people live play live test your game right in front of you and you can see when you know multiple people come up upon the same issue where they have a difficulty either seeing that they could move further down a hallway or they don't see a couple doors that are in the south wall that type of thing so what i did uh, is pretty and those are very specific examples because those are exactly two things that i fixed for the adventure x version of the demo um because yeah, when I'm working by myself, I I can't necessarily approach it for the first time uh, anymore. So watching people not realize that they can go further down the hallway is something I, I I realized I had to change the graphic a bit there to make to to make it look like you could actually move further down the hallway. Um, and then and then actually seeing it work out better in uh, an adventure acts, the things that I changed to actually help the game work smoother. And it's not something that you know people who are who would have approached the game for the first time at, at Adventure X would notice, but just knowing that it went smoothly and they didn't realize that it had been more difficult before, um, that really helps too. It helps me figure out what I need to do to make the game a smoother experience. 
Right, yeah. So imagine it's very valuable then uh, going to mm-hmm, these conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, because when I was at Adventure X, I was playing one of the games. Now, I I kind of get a little bit nervous myself. Like, imagine, like you mentioned, it was scary for you, like watching you play <laughs> the game. I, as a player, I kind of get nervous playing in front of developers because I think, oh my god, I, I do the most stupid things possible <laughs> in adventure <laughs> games. That and there was one developer who said, oh, I can see that we didn't. Uh, make this as you know clear clear enough and it's oh no, no don't go just by me <laughs> if other people have the same issue and i think it is that i completely forgotten about a menu or something that they had already <laughs> explained at the beginning of the game so i said no this is on me right um, i'm not going to say that this is you guys because you guys explained before and then i just forgot about it so um <laughs> but uh but but yeah no it's great to hear that you're able to see you know what changes need to be made as well or the feedback from from players as well mm-hmm. uh as well at these conferences but um so then so you mentioned as well that this hadn't started out as a game um mm-hmm. so now i think i heard somewhere that you're an illustrator by uh, occupation is that correct yeah yeah absolutely i i went to I shared in college. I got a Bachelor of Applied Arts Illustration. And for about 10 years, I'd say, I was working as a, as a freelance illustrator, um, doing, uh, doing work for magazines and newspapers and that type of thing mostly. And so it's actually been a real asset for me to start with the art because that is something that sort of it catches the eye first before anything else and kind of helps the game stand out with, with the big colorful banner and things like that. It, it, it really helps people to um, come to the table when uh, when they when they come to an event because it's just so bright. Like the EGA color palette is really the brightest color palette ever, and it's very unusual the, the selection of colors that you actually do end up having. And so I kind of that did help it to get attention, I think. Um, and uh, because of uh, my art background, and it started with the art. The art is is very well developed and detailed, and uh, I think people really respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. The you know the art of the game, even though it mentioned it's EGA and it looks old school, you can definitely tell that it's of a you know very high quality. That's what I you know what I noticed first when I saw the game. And um, so so what kind of work when he when he did an, uh, become an illustrator? Um, so what what kind of work then? What did, you know? How did you illustrate then? What kind of things did you illustrate um, for? And did you do for newspapers then? Or magazines, mm-hmm. or yeah, yeah. There was um, so some Canadian publications. I used to do a lot of work for Maclean's magazine, which was our sort of our national news magazine. Um, in the National Post in the states. I did uh, the New Yorker a couple times, and um, Business Week, and uh, a bunch, yeah, a bunch of different publications. And and I actually started out uh, doing silkscreen printing. And what's funny is that a lot of these skills have transferred over from one discipline to the next because. Uh, EGA is a 16 color palette. Well, when I was doing my screen printing, I would uh, I would have a very limited color palette too. I'd maybe use maybe five or six colors at most, and I would actually use sort of screen tone dots to give myself a third color, a fourth color, and that's a lot like the dithering that you get in EGA. So it really it was a natural thing for me to transition into when I started making making the EGA art, and uh, the the uh, the flatness of the art too. My art for illustration was pretty like linear and and, and 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 the line was very flat and the colors were very flat so that was another thing that I kind of carried over to the EGA art style so it, it all kind of all get it all connected and one thing really built on on top of the next or the last right yeah no that's pretty cool so you use your skills from your you know your occupation into making the game 
Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the, I mean, definitely, as I mentioned, we can definitely see the game. It it does look beautiful. And, oh, thank you. Um, and so, Dana, what point did you uh, show? Because the distance there of the game, you know, to start out as you know, kind of illustrations as you mentioned. What point did you then decide that you wanted to make this into a game, as such? Mm-hmm. The uh, the art was coming along, and as I'm making the art, my, my mind already in the back of my head, I'm starting to come up with little story ideas here that aren't necessarily connected, but just when, when you make a room, you wonder, well, you know, well, maybe why why is this room here? Why is this the house that I'm making? Why is this here? Or, you know, I, I kind of had an era in my mind when I was designing the game because I was doing research about kind of style of furniture that might be in a house like this, so... It started to sort of gel together slowly as as uh, as, a, as, a, as a story idea, and uh, I don't know if you noticed, but if you played the um, the introductory and introductory cut sequence cut cutscene, uh, that's a sort of like it all it's all kind of placeholder art, and um, I think I had that introductory sequence set for wordplay last year because I wanted to have something to show in terms of what the build up to the story is before the the player assumes control and that was important for me to build even though it's not finished yet it was important for me to build that because it made me kind of commit to certain story points along along the way because when it's just in my head I can change things you know on the fly and nothing really gets committed to but when I started building the assets and sort of making the the demo uh the demos intro work in an adventure game studio I had to make decisions about what the story was actually going to be instead of having it kind of be um, just like an, an amorphous blob in my head that would change uh, at the slightest inclination. Uh, that was helpful too. So not only was a uh, wordplay helpful for me in terms of developing the demo as a vertical slice of the game that would give people what the experience would be, it also was helpful in really nailing down what the story was going to be for that first little section of the game. Because I had to decide what was going to happen in, in that section of the game, and then I had to figure out how I was going to um, convey what that story was, what the setting was, who the characters were. And just so building this, the demo last year really, was really helpful, like I said, in directing my energy and making something that was coherent and, uh, and solid and hopefully something that was something people could be interested in. Yeah, well, I think we can say that people are interested in it. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to hear how, you know, it went from a natural progression into a game, like into the story and the characters and then the placeholder art as well and how you came up with, uh, you know, story little by little. Now, before we ask, I ask about the story then, uh, there's one thing as well that I I read somewhere that uh, I believe the person who did the art for the Colonel's Bequest is it true that he thought that some of the art that you did for the Crimson Diamond <laughs> that he thought that he had done it? Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's, it's so adorable the story because I yeah, I I went to Pax West. I was not showing there, but I was volunteering at Laurie and Corey Cole's booth for Transolio Games. They were showing. Um, Hero U, Rogue to Redemption, and um, they're showing a little bit of a demo of their next game, Summer Days, which just got kickstarted. Yes, and uh, uh, yeah, well, which is great. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, so um, I, over that weekend, I actually got the chance to meet Doug Herring, who was um, who was the artist for the Colonel's Bequest. He did basically all the art in that game, and that was really like a real special experience for me because you know I'd never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd have actually ever get to meet this guy who was such a big figure. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> Not only growing up, but even to this day. I mean, I've got the Colonel's Bequest big box here on my shelf, and I look at it constantly. And it just—I uh, even go into the game. I bought the game on GOG, and I sometimes will just walk around in the game and just look at the art. And uh, and still, I'm still learning from it. And I got to meet him, and 
and uh, you know he he'd seen a bit of bits of the game, and he said, yeah, he said exactly that. He said sometimes he look he'll look at it and think it's something that either he did or he could have done. Because it's funny with these guys who've been working in the industry for years, is you ask them something about, oh, did you do this or did you do that? Sometimes they can't remember, and the people that are the fans remember even better than they do actually. Because for us, we we sort of stay with that piece of that project, but for them, they've been working on dozens and dozens of other things in the inter- intervening years. So for them, it's kind of history for them that they don't really think about anymore because creative people are continue to move forward and produce things, which he has done. But for us, it's like a fly in amber. We just come back to it and come back to it. And it's it's always something that's fresh in our minds, even though it might not be for him. So it's the highest compliment to, to receive, actually, that, that he felt that way about well, it. Absolutely. The ultimate compliment, you know, <laughs> you, get, you know, the, what, the person who inspired you the most, shall we say, when you met him and he says, yeah, no, he thought that your art yes. was his, which... Which is, I mean, if anybody, you know, still d- doesn't know about the art, you can check it out there and you can definitely see. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting what they say, how, you know, for us, like, we replay the games again and again. But for the developers and the artists, mm-hmm. they work on it and then move on to other stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we ask them, you know, if we ask Ron Gilbert of Monkey Island, you know, he might be like, oh, I didn't remember about that part. Cause exactly. Probably moved on to loads of other oh, yeah. things. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that's that's great uh, to hear. That's, I mean, it's the ultimate compliment. So congrats on that. It is. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so and well deserved, I think. From you know, <laughs> start to comparing myself, Colonel Bequest to Crimson Diamond. I'm like, yeah, they, you know, it could be one or the <laughs> other. But um, and then before we move on to the story, actually, for people who might not know, you t- touch on it a little bit about EGA. I was wondering if you could. Uh, now we probably don't shouldn't go on too much detail about this, but what what exactly does EGA mean? If you can tell sure. us for people yes. who don't know, so I, <laughs> like me, I <laughs> EGA stands for Enhanced Graphics Adapter, and uh-huh. it was a uh, it was a progression of t- a graphics technology that um, the games were working with. But the one that preceded it that I was most familiar with was CGA, which I think was Composite Graphics Adapter. I'm not looking at anything right now, so if I'm wrong, then please, yeah, people can correct me. But it was a that was a three color palette of magenta, white, and cyan, or like a red, a yellow, and a green. So well, there were games that were were kind of uh, built around those technologies. But what really caught my eye when I was a kid was the games that started coming out that were EGA, which was the 16 color palette, the one that I use, and that started out with games like uh, I think King's Quest uh, maybe two had it, King's Quest three. Um, Space Quest, all those ones that had um, a very kind of blockier EGA art. That was um, a, an AGI style of game where, because at the time the space requirements on the discs were so strict, uh, what they did was uh, they made the pixels double wide. So actually the visual information required uh, for a screen, you'd basically just be stretching it sideways. So the amount of information was was half of what it might be necessarily for if you had pixel by pixel artwork. So double wide pixels, very wide pixels. You'll see that in... Um, King's Quest 3, for instance, that's a really good example, or Gold Rush. And what they did was, as the, as the space got better and the technology got better, they were able to do one-by-one one pixels. So something like that one of you know the later versions of Quest, uh, King's Quest 4, Quest for Glory 1, Quest for Glory 2, those were, you can kind of get into what we call dithering, which is that nice checkerboard pattern of getting intermediate colors, not just the 16. So the eye gets fooled into thinking it's seeing more colors than it is, but... That's the type of uh, visual trick that you can use if you do, do dithering um, skill, skill. And uh, that's the, the type of uh, the art that I like the most. That I th- Okay. 
think was the most effective in, in showing, um, you know, different colors and everything. Because while I do love uh, AGI games, the SCI games, which is the style that Colonel's Bequest was made in, and uh, also uh, King's Quest 1 and 2, I mean, uh, Quest for Glory 1 and 2, that style gave you, give us more, like, um, more range of color, even though not necessarily range of color, but just visually it looked like a greater range of color. And though that visual trick of the dithering, to me, is where a lot of that magic happens. And, and that's sort of um, the reason why I, I kind of gravitated toward that toward that color. I don't know. Was that the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, uh, that's a better better answer than I could have given or I could have thought of. So, yeah, no, that, I, I just, definitely. <laughs> I sometimes so, go on like a roll and then I can't remember where I started. So No, 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 no. That, 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 was, that was perfect. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah. So this is the, the style that you're using in the Crimson Diamonds then. Yes, EGA yes. and specifically like sort of an, it's called the SCI. I think it's called Sierra Creative Interpreter is the acronym. But SCI EGA specifically is the style that, that I'm using. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose we're half an hour in and we've spoken <laughs> a little bit about the text parser and the art, but we haven't spoken about the story yet. So. Right. Um, so what can you tell us about the setup of this game, the Crimson Diamond? So I, I, I imagine it's, uh, it's about a diamond that's crimson. <laughs> that's what people might imagine um, the logo the logo actually has just a sort of a clear colorless diamond in the logo and, with, and that's sort of the diamond that kicks off the whole story is this idea that this big diamond was found in the belly of a fish that a fisherman sort of gutted when after he caught it and that's the linchpin toward having all these you know a bunch of people with these conflicting interests uh, competing interests uh, come to the lodge which is up north and that's that's sort of it was a decision I made to make it sort of a, a um, an isolated location because um, first of all when I made the the lodge I, I hadn't really thought about having it having other locations I wanted it to be very based on one location because that was where all my focus was and uh, also for that kind of a traditional sort of cozy mystery type of thing it's a very classic setting um, to have it all be set in basically one location and and what we do is we see the setting change over time and the characters move. In different areas over time, so you get this idea that um, everyone kind of has their own inner lives in a way. So that's where it started, just having having it be a story idea and then a, a sort of a creative idea in response to just how I was feeling when I developed the assets. Oh no, I've rambled again. No, 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 that's that's great. So first of all, when you say <laughs> when you say that uh, it's up north, do you mean in Canada yes. or north yes, of Canada? Yes, yes, okay, yes. It, so that's where the string was. I, I like yeah, that's the part where. Yeah, no, that, that's, kind of, that's great actually. But uh, yeah, northern but, yeah, so northern Ontario, northern Ontario, Canada. The reason for that is because yeah, I, I I'm born and raised in in Ontario, and uh, when I when I was writing the story and I decided I wanted it to be a diamond, I was doing a lot of you know research, geological and historical research about um, what could realistically be be found and uh, and what would encourage people to a go up to a remote area and b why there might be a big lodge in that area and nothing else so for me it was i had created these things and the research i was doing was helping me almost build a case for why those things would have existed so the setting came first and when i was doing my research i realized that in in uh, ontario and in canada we have a lot of sort of natural resources and a lot of our our towns that remain to this day have been built around natural resources, mines and, uh, you know, timber and uh, that sort of thing. And I have this wonderful book called Ontario's Ghost Town Heritage, which covers, you know, towns that didn't actually make it and, and how they got started and what happened eventually. And a lot of them were mining towns. So I figured this would actually be a really good way for me to tie in this MacGuffin type of thing where, you know, it's this, this, this thing that everyone wants. 
and uh, also why it would be in a remote location and and um, why there'd be a big lodge. So this idea started gelling in my head that Crimson, Ontario would have been a garnet mining town and uh, it would have gone boom, it would have gone bust and everyone would have left um, except for this guy in his grand lodge that was built in the town's hay. And now that it's been deserted, they found maybe a diamond might be in the area and that's why everyone's coming back to it. And geologically, it actually does make sense. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that because uh, and up until last year in 2018, there was a working diamond mine up up far, far north in northern Ontario, f- further north than I think my game would actually be set in. But uh, it actually geologically makes sense, too, to have uh, a diamond be found in Ontario. They just happened much later. So it's nice to see how that all kind of worked out very well for me in terms of what the detail is. And I found that a lot when I'm doing the research for the story is stuff that I've already built or decided on. I'll do research and I realize that it doesn't match up. There's historical precedence or geological precedence to some of the stuff that I've I've actually done. And that makes me feel really great that everything's kind of holding together. And I think that sense of things holding together in a logical way um, kind of goes comes through to the player in, in bits and pieces here and there. And, that, and that's kind of nice, too. Yeah, it, it, it all fits, as you, as you mentioned, that you were just you mm-hmm. wanted a reason for, uh, you know, for it to be this large in this isolated area. And then you're doing research and then hey it's uh you know it it mm-hmm. could theoretically mm-hmm. happen it has happened um yeah, and yeah. so uh reality imitating art then as you discover later <laughs> on about the diamond mine but um yeah no all of that you know makes makes a lot of sense so then sort of this uh, fisherman he fishes he finds these diamonds and then presumably these really nice people <laughs> want uh want a piece of the diamond you know who have no nefarious motives whatsoever i'm sure of course, <laughs> sure, of course. really it's lovely be... people um they're, they're there. all very nice and, and trustworthy and um <laughs> they all have everyone's best interest in mind sure. it's all it's very canadian it's all oh after you or no after you or you know you have the diamond no you have the diamond you know, so that's yeah <laughs> so everyone is very polite and very nice to each other and yeah, yeah. so that's the end of the game then that you just <laughs> <laughs> Um, so okay, well, I'm sure maybe one or two people maybe they might be forgetting their Canadianness or their politeness and maybe might be wanting a piece of the diamond themselves and so uh, then who is the main character who's the character that we play as right so we play Nancy Maple who is um, Nancy Drew plus Miss Marple <laughs> plus Canada plus Laura Bow I mean you know, she, she's a lot of different things <laughs> I, I love that and, name Na- Nancy Maple because it's like <laughs> Nancy Drew and then Miss Marple oh no but it's Maple Canada Maple yes. Syrup yeah it's... yeah yeah <laughs> so, so that's where she comes from and uh, she is you know she's that traditional go-getter heroine you know she she is very very highly motivated uh, to go up north her boss is sending her because he figures it's a long shot and, and who better to send for the long shot than the most expendable clerk in your in your employ <laughs> and so she gets sent up she she works for the royal canadian museum which is set to open i think that that year or the following year and they would love to have a spectacular canadian diamonds exhibit that would be really dazzling for the public and really really bring the people in and sell tickets so that that's why she gets to go up there and um, she does eventually want to study mineralogy and geology formally but uh, in order to do that she she really has to prove herself and and that's sort of sort of the idea the player gets to uh in the introductory section you take a train up north you meet a few people a couple people along the way and uh you get you get set down at night before dinner and uh, you have to you know introduce yourself and then the next day you can do some field work and uh, that's kind of how the game proceeds you are nancy and uh, you need to figure out about the diamonds and maybe some other things that crop up along the way. Cool. So then you're um, 
Uh, so, so she's uh, she worked for as a clerk for the Royal Canadian Museum. Is she kind of like a geologist or a mineral, mineralogist herself, or an amateur one? Yeah, Still? yeah, she's an amateur. She's an amateur one. I think in some part of the game, she'll she says to somebody that you know she's read a lot of books, maybe the intro sequence. So she she's one of those people who yeah she's she's an amateur. She's whatever she's learned, she's learned from reading books in the library and things like that. But she's really enthusiastic and she does want to you know make a make a career of it. But it's a bit of this a bit of a barrier because. Um, at the time, it was not that common for women to sort of be in sort of higher education, and especially in a field like uh, geology and mineralogy, where you, you know, the, a lot of the fieldwork was happening in these remote places. Um, it was something that they were banned and barred from actually participating in because they weren't really allowed to go into those remote camps that were mostly um, men. And that's another reason why uh, she um, was so keen, because her boss says, that, oh, well, there's actually an inn, and oh, working in that's up north there so it's not going to be like a remote camp you're actually going to be in a civilized setting so i can i can see no reason why not to send you and that's the reason why she's also very very eager to go up there and what's really cool is i was doing some more research fairly recently and i did actually find an example of a, the first canadian geolo- the first female canadian geologist got a doctorate in in mineralogy and or geology and uh she was not allowed to go to remote camps to do field work because for that very <laughs> same reason so what she had to do was she made a whole career for herself where she would go to her local area stuff that was around her and she would perform you know surveys and she would do field study like that and to much acclaim well, um so well, that actually so does again it's another example of yeah yeah reality imitating art you know? exactly so you find these kind i find these connections later and i and i realized that that's maybe i don't know how i came to it but i found that connection where it did happen in real life right so it made me feel even more confident that the story was 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 going to make sense to people on a bunch of different levels. So yeah, that yeah, was that's, really that's incredible. That you know, again, this is uh, you know a couple of times now that you came up with the story first and then you <laughs> were doing research, and then it shows that actually these things or similar things have actually happened. Yeah, so, so I mean. Even if it isn't um, quite exactly the same, sometimes I can move the story a bit so it does rem- resemble that more closely. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the research that I've I've gotten to do, but yeah, yeah it's really encouraging to see that yeah, because no, you see as you start forming these connections, yeah, one hundred percent. It's it's been really the research is really addictive, and now what what's happening is I'm doing research and and I'm thinking oh this could go really well in maybe the next game and then it's just never ending really like just picking right. stuff and noticing things that might work. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. And um, then you mentioned as well that uh, she's kind of like a you know, detective, you know, Nancy Drew, Miss Marple. Is she an mm-hmm. amateur detective at this point as well? That she's that you know, has she read murder mystery <laughs> novels, or has she has? Does she have any background as uh, as a detective at this point? She does not, and so she kind of realizes, I think, over the course of the game, that this is something she actually enjoys doing. Um, it's not something she'd ever really considered in her life, but this sort of the way she grew up, I think, encouraged her to have an attention for detail and be able to, um, you know, get 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 information as much as possible. She, uh, yeah. So in the manual, I mean, not that anyone reads the manual, but in the manual, she <laughs> is actually she she grew up she grew up in an area in in a district in Toronto. It's a historic district, doesn't really exist anymore, called the War, which was a place where a lot of new immigrants at the time, or we're talking like early 1900s late 1800s would uh, come to Toronto to settle in so what we had was a very diverse um, group of people so you had a lot of um, Eastern European a lot of Irish immigrants from the potato famine um, a lot of black people too in that area were all settling in the same like one little area which is really cool because it kind of for me it um, echoes how I grew up 
Um, right. as in, in Scarborough, which is an extremely diverse area, too. And I feel like she has taken lessons from growing up in a community where um, you can't really take people, uh, you can't make assumptions about people, what they're like, based on what they look like or how, you know, how they're acting. You kind of have to pay attention to what's going on around you and, uh, and kind of uh, really learn the truth about what people actually are like instead of basing it on, on you know, your biases or, or your, your notions about what people are like. So I think for her that in that way, it's her upbringing has really figured into her just being an attentive person because it's something you kind of needed to do um, growing up in the type of neighborhood that she did. And, and it was it was not it was considered kind of like a rough part of town, too. So it's something else where she that's why she's cautious. She's naturally a cautious person. And, and that kind of all figures into, you know, how she behaves in the game um, for the player. Okay, so then her upbringing down in this rough area kind of uh, can help her maybe in the game with these kind of nefarious characters. Yeah, I would say so. I I would say, you know, it it comes out, you know, a bit more and more as we go. And then she does realize that um, she does. She she has an interest in maybe delving into more of, you know, um, (laughs) I I I don't know how I'd say it, but like geology and mineralogy are kind of... um, like really, really, really long history and learning about people is kind of like a more of a short-term learning of history. So I think she she starts gaining appreciation for that. And just she's one of those people who doesn't like things to see things go in a way that isn't fair or isn't um, truthful. She's, she's one of those people, uh, like them, kind of a Miss Marple character who just has a sense of justice that she may feel that she would maybe potentially, depending on what the, what the player wants to do in the end, um, sure. you know, how she'll eventually decide things will eventually um, conclude. I don't know if you mentioned this before, but you mentioned it's the time that, that um, you know, the, the, the setting and the time period. What year is this game set? don't know if we mentioned would, that. Uh, or what time period? Well, um, yeah, about 19, I would say 1914. I would kind of waver a bit here and there, 1913, 1914. Um, the reason being is just that the era is, you know, it's kind of, like a prime era for those types of um, mystery mystery stories. And it's one of those things people writers say all the time about how nowadays it can be really tricky to write a mystery story because, you know, everyone's got cell phones and you've got the police mm-hmm. and they're really close and, and, and everything like that. So, the you know, of course, the classical, you know, Agatha Christie style setting is, you know, it's remote or it's in a place where, you know, you can't get, the authorities can't get you in any you know, reasonable amount of time. So that's why all these things can happen is because we don't have that kind of authority figure. Um and uh, the technology is not there either, so it's a lot easier to get away with things potentially. So uh, that's one sure. of the reasons. And I, yeah, I just I just like the era. I like um, I like Art Nouveau. I like kind of like, like we're not getting into Art Deco quite then, but just that the, the aesthetics of the time I, I find really appealing. So that's one of the reasons why I, I did that as well. So we've heard more about the character uh, Nancy Maple. And <laughs> are you able to say anything about any of the other characters that we could see in the game? Because you mentioned how. Uh, you know, that's uh, at least from when I was there, so how diverse and multicultural Canada is as well. So are mm-hmm, there ca- mm-hmm. characters kind of like that in the game or anything that you can say without uh, going to spoilers? <laughs> or? Um, yeah, there, there's some. There's some of that. Um, uh, so Nancy meets on the way to, to Crimson. She does meet uh, Kimmy, who is from B.C., um, British Columbia out west, um, who is going to Crimson, Ontario and the Lodge to do some bird watching. And so she is uh, a daughter of Japanese immigrants, which is sort of kind of a bit of, a, of my own personal history, because that's sort of how uh, my uh, my dad's side of the family came to be. He They actually came to Canada quite early. Uh, I, I actually went to um, the National, there's an immigration museum, I think, in Halifax. So they visited and I got someone to look up a few things here and there for me. And I saw some records about, you know, when some of my relatives first landed in Canada. And it's actually, it's, you know, like late 1800s, early 1900s is when 
it all started. So I kind of included her for that reason. And yeah, it's really cool to, to learn about it. And so, um, you know, she comes from sort of a background where her, her parents have done well uh, with farming and she's able to sort of travel around and uh, kind of uh, enjoy, enjoy, you know, her parents' um, hard work in a way. So she's, 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 she's like an enthusiast and a hobbyist, um, but for birds instead of minerals, which is what it is. So that's, you know, it's something where I felt like I wanted um, the the history that ha- was at the time, I wanted to, that to figure in as well. I mean, it's not like a major um, plot point or anything, but it's just one of those details that um, I wanted to include just because it's, it's a real thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's the reality of not, you know, it might not be something people are used to seeing because we can sometimes have this idea of what history was like back then based on, you know, the popular um, media that we, we enjoy nowadays. But I think we're actually getting better about showing that actually there are people of all kinds all over the place um, in history that might not have been seen otherwise. So I kind of have that there just for my own personal reasons and also historical reasons because it is more accurate. Right, yeah, no, that, that, that's cool as well. And any other characters that we can expect to see in the game without going into any spoilers? So <laughs> there are these lovely, nice people that we'll get to meet. <laughs> well, um, well, we have, I think, the, the most sort of contentious relationship in the game is probably between Evan and his sister. And so she, um, she grew up in Crimson with Evan, although the difference being is that Evan was born in Crimson, Ontario, and that's kind of the only life he's ever known. But she's his uh, older sister, and she remembers living in, in England, which is where their parents sort of immigrated, emigrated, immigrated, emigrated from. And uh, so she has this other perspective of it, where she remembers what their life was like before. And so when they moved to Crimson, it was like a frontier town. It was very hard living. And so she, as soon as she was old enough to, she she left and she went down to downtown Toronto, the city, and lived there instead. And it's only now that they think that there might be diamonds in the area that she is compelled to come back up and get her share of whatever is there. And she brings her lawyer as well. And so they don't have a very good relationship. But, you know, it's one of those things writing where when I, when I write about the characters, I don't think of them as 100% bad people or anything like that. I, I sympathize a lot with, with Nessa, actually, because I can see where she's coming from, where she was you know, a young kid and then her parents were settling in this area and she has this new one brother that she has to help take care of in this new situation that she's not comfortable with and it's hard it's a hard life and i can see why she might um resent that and resent him for just being content to just be there and just live there live there and and not do really anything else potentially with his life she considers him sort of lazy and and unambitious so you know it's just it's one of those things where um i wanted to make the characters not be one-dimensional and i wanted to be able to identify and kind of empathize with everyone that was in there even if people you know, on the surface, she is, she's not, I don't think she is that, that great of a person. And, and she doesn't, she has no qualms with, you know, trying to soften her, her edges for anybody. But uh, I, I, I don't think she is not without her reasons. Right. Yeah. So everyone kind of has something maybe, you know, maybe not nice, but not, they're not like <clears throat> 100% bad people. Then. No, no. I mean, yeah, I don't that's... think I would, would write. Sure. Anyone like that, um, because, um, you know, that's that, that's fine and it can be effective. But um, the whole idea about the mystery is you kind of um, you don't want to immediately, you know, think, oh, well, this person did something or this, per-, you know, like because it's so clear on the surface what's happening. But I wanted there to be this dimension where you say, well, yeah, I can kind of see her point. And even though she's kind of a mean person, that doesn't mean that mean people don't have a point that they're, sure. <laughs> they often there's often reasons why they behave the way they behave. And, and so she does have her reasons. And. That does come out a little bit, especially also in the demo. You can see her. She, if you talk, if you, you listen to a couple conversations, you can kind of get more of an idea of what she what she actually is like. 
Sure. Okay. Looking forward to finding out more about her then. Um, now the, uh, the setting, now you mentioned that it's set in Crimson, Ontario. That's where mm-hmm. I met her named the Crimson Diamond. Is that yes. a fic- that's a fictional setting I think you mentioned, correct? Yes, it's a fictional setting. I, I kind of wanted to not have, um, it's, you know, it, it's fictionalized history in a way. So um, having a town that would um, satisfy all of my requirements of what it would be, it could only really be a fictional place. And uh, just... Uh, I think it kind of adds to mystique to have it be something that, that never really did happen. It's kind of a, just only lives in, in the mind in a way. I, I, I like that idea. And I love the, I love the name Crimson. I think it's perfect. So um, <laughs> there was a, there was a town called Garnet, Ontario, and that was the original name for the, the town. But um, after coming upon the, the game's name and then just realizing how perfect it all fit together after that, the Crimson Ontario name, it just really stuck. So again, it just fits the name. It just fits. <laughs> exactly. I, I, and it's really, it's, that's one of those things where, you know, you kind of live for those moments where you've or you've been working on something and then eventually somehow it takes form, even, you know, even though you can't imagine why, you know, it would. But these things do, do tend to come together in a, in a kind of a weird way. But it's really, that's kind of like life and it's beautiful and surprising and, mm. and makes you feel like, yeah, this is, this is really cool that these connections can be made. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, maybe it's a sign after all. Maybe we should, call it, uh, maybe we should put Crimson in the title. <laughs> or maybe we should name Town Crimson. So, and, um, so then we've, uh, we, we've spoken a little bit about the kind of gameplay text parser then. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know what uh, and how do we act on the people. Don't know if we spoke about exactly what the text parser means for people who have never heard of it, have never. Mm-hmm played a game so I wonder if you could just mention you know what exactly we have to do in the game so we don't point and click in this game correct right well or do we, <laughs> we do. Point and click in, in the game you <laughs> you can but it's very limited so what it is is that you can move the character around the screen with the mouse pointing and clicking and you can navigate through the graphical inventory through pointing and clicking and the menus right. through pointing and clicking. So you will need a mouse to, to play this game. I don't think that was an unreasonable requirement in this day and age to have a mouse. Um, but for most of the gameplay interaction, you can use you use the keyboard. And you can actually move um, Nancy around on the screen with the arrow keys, too. So most of the game interaction can be done with uh, the keyboard. And what that means is stuff like talking to people and looking at things and um, asking people about things. All those things. You, you type into the parser that comes up when you press, you know, um, like a letter key on the keyboard or press enter or space, I think. Um, okay, so, so, so what it, it does it, is, yeah. Literally type, you know, ask about. Um, yeah, ask Kimmy diamond, about. Yeah, Diamond, ask Kimmy about Lodge, ask, yeah, yeah, ask Kimmy okay. about NASA, that type of thing. Yeah, so it's, it's very, um, although I, I will pro tip. Uh, if you press spacebar, you, it will call up the last parser, parse command you enter. So if you wanted to ask someone about a lot of things, you can press the spacebar and it will come up again. Ask Kimmy about birds. You can backtrack that a bit and then oh. enter in a different word. So you don't have to type the whole sentence in all over again. Oh, very nice. You, just, you can interrogate people that way. <laughs> um, yeah, so, th- so that's what that is. And it's actually funny watching people play it because uh, what I've seen, and which is really cool, is you know people who played Zork or those, the Twine games that are coming out that, you know, that are wonderful because it encourages people to think um, very, very much narratively heavy and uh, and interact with the world with words or with selections of words. Uh, I've seen people actually open, type "open door" uh, in one of the in the rooms, and then type "go through door" or "exit room," which oh. is 
which is cool because I never thought about that as something that would happen because it never really happened in Sierra games. But I can totally see where people are getting the impression that that is a command that they could enter in because things like Zork and, you know, other text adventures, you'd actually have to type go west mm. or west or something. So I'm actually thinking that I will implement that into the game, even though it's not something that would be considered traditional for the format. It's just something that I've seen people, especially at Adventure X, try to do. And there's no reason why I can't have that in the game. So I think that would be actually really cool to implement. I mean, I say that now, but maybe after a month or two of failing to implement it properly, I'll, I'll sing a different tune. But I think it would be cool to have something like that because um, it's something people do try. And uh, I don't see what, you know, it, it'd be another fun little way to interact with the game. But yeah, so it's it's cool because, you know, you kind of, you do have to think more about what you're doing and, and uh, you have to pay attention to what people are talking about to kind of come up with the appropriate subjects that you can talk to people about. And uh, I know not mo not a lot of people might enjoy that style of, of gameplay, which is why, like I said, I don't punish people for asking, not asking the right questions, because right. I don't expect people to pay as much attention. You know, some people are play like that, some people don't, but I won't... Um, I won't make that something where if you don't ask the right question, you can't proceed. So that's what the notebook is for, um, is to okay. give those prompts about how to move through the game. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that's, that's good to know because as we mentioned, you know, with dead ends in uh, previous, mm -hmm. you know, well, Sierra mm -hmm. games, that yep. oh, I forgot to ask this person about this thing, or forgot to pick up this object. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's not going to happen. Ten yeah. screens. Oh, that's that's good to know. So so this seems to be like your. Uh, you know, old school players, you know, people who played Colonel's Bequest and games like that and other text parser games would probably enjoy it. But it also seems like you're trying to aim for uh, people kind of like me as well who've never really played text parser games or didn't grow up playing text parser games as well. Would that be correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, um, definitely that's my goal. And it's been more and more my goal now that I've you know shown it to, in other places and realized that, yeah, you know what? nowadays we are used to interacting with with texting you know i mean even with you know talk about yes. talking about our, our phones right i mean we're, we're texting and typing all the time and yeah with these exciting awesome um ways of um the tools are, are much easier now to make games and a lot of those games are text-based so we have stuff like twine or um inform or adventure on which is a new one that's being developed that is really cool it kind of combines some images with some text parser as well and it's really cool because I've actually been told that those types of programs are being taught in game design classes and programs and things. And so what we have is a whole generation of these game designers who are becoming well acquainted with uh, with games that are, are either mostly type or all type. And I think, nice. it, I think it, it, what it does is it, it makes us more accustomed to interacting in that way again. And uh, hopefully that, that means that people are more open to trying something like my game, which is, you know, heavy, heavily graphical, but also very heavily text-based too so yeah i'm kind of optimistic for that um for the future yeah there could be more games in the future kind of you know like this or similar with more te te text parser type games mm -hmm. which be really nice to see as well it's funny how you know things kind of revert back you know started off text parser and then, <laughs> then point you know point and click and now going back to text parser so you know we'll see i hope um, so yeah certainly i think the, i think the more different types of venture games for me the better um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know just for me, but for everyone, everyone, I think, and for the genre in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, so now you mentioned as well the, the inventory, I think. So is there, I, I don't know if I saw it, because I said I haven't yet had a chance to play the, the demo, but um, is there like a way to see a graphical inventory and then it's something else? Or, or did I really see that wrong? So you see the inventory as a graphical inventory. Yes. Yeah, it is. And, I, and, and what that is, is it's actually, you know, it's one of those things where I'm not, 
I'm not married to recreating the exact experience of those older games. It, you know, I, I am interested in improving upon uh, the experience based on, you know, the stuff that, uh, that has come before. And that's an example of that. And they didn't have graphical inventories. I, I can't think of a Sierra game that had an EGA graphical inventory. But because I'm an artist first, and I also think it's just more... It's easier to use. That's why I've included one in, in my game. But there is the option to make it a text text uh, based window so those games um, back in the day if you typed inventory or press the tab key it would just give you like a lot like a grocery list of stuff right. that you're, you're carrying and and that was it and so that that is an option although i will say that i haven't really tested that option very well um so i hope it does work i, I think it mostly works um but yeah it's it's there for people who want that experience but uh, i would rec definitely recommend the graphical one because it's just fun to see the little pictures of the inventory items and it's easier to interact with the inventory items in that way because um because you're doing field work and you're doing um kind of investigative work you can look at the items by clicking the eyeball icon onto things, or you can examine them clicking the loop icon onto two different things. And you can actually type into the text parser, examine newspaper, for instance, or you can go into the graphical inventory and then just click the loop on it, which is definitely a lot easier. So, Sure, yes, yeah, so there's different variations on you know what how we can interact. Yeah, even with the yeah. movement. So I, I mentioned that there is um, point and click for people who are more used to that. And also even with the cursor keys, um, the old Sierra games have that tap to move style of, of moving where you tap the arrow key once in one direction and, and the character starts moving. You tap the same arrow key in that same direction and then they'll stop moving. Which oh, okay. for me, when I, yeah, when I first, um, when I first had the demo at Wordplay, that's the, um, the movement option that I had. But, um, when I watched people play it, I quickly realized that most people are not used to the Sierra style of cursor movement. And so I changed the default to press and hold. Like, you know, if you're playing any any game now that would use the WASD keys or something, I'm just pressing and holding to move in a direction. She So the default is pressing and holding cursor keys to move in that direction. But for people who are, you know, really used to that Sierra style of tap to move, that is an option in the main menu. So it's another just another example of wanting it to be something that um, you have an option to play differently depending on, you know, how, how you, your comfort level or your familiarity with the genre or just preference, really. It, it's, it was something that was really easy to do, so I was I was happy to do it. Right. Well, that sounds great. I think, you know, I mentioned different types of games better, but also like, I think the more options as well that we have in mm -hmm. games, the mm -hmm. better as well for people who might for one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that, that sounds great. And then I'm curious as well that we spoke about the you know the text person how you can type ask give me about diamond mm -hmm. and that uh, she's to investigate the you know the diamond and things that happen uh what what ways can she investigate so presumably she talking to characters is mm -hmm, one way mm -hmm. are there any other ways that she can shall I say investigate the you know well with the scenes and the the mystery right so the most fun way that she can actually investigate that you'll see quite a bit in the demo is the eavesdropping mechanic, mm. <laughs> which is her listening in, in hallways, at doorways. Uh, so that's that's one of the ways um, that then that's the way that features most heavily in the demo. I would say. although later on in the game, when I, you know you do the field work, you're going to be examining stuff. Um, you can later on in the game there's going to be more kind of mystery based types of puzzles like uh, i don't know i don't think I'm, this is spoiling anything but uh, you do do some you know some fingerprint puzzles and things like that where you have to get some fingerprints from people and that so that's more of the kind of uh, mystery investigation style of um, investigation okay. 
Yeah. So it's it's a it's a combination of you know dialogue and interrogation and um, eavesdropping and some you know some actual criminology type of elements potentially. So that that's sort of where I'm going with it. I'm I'm not doing too many different mechanics. I'm trying to keep it fairly focused on on the story and the characters with with just a few kind of fairly straightforward um, puzzle mechanics because I do want it to be the focus. Uh, the Colonel's bequest was very focused on on uh, on the story and wanting the player to get, experience the story and you know not be hung up on really really difficult puzzles. I don't really think they had any tricky multi-step puzzles in that game. And, right. um Yeah, so it's more about enjoying the story. That's what I want people to enjoy most of all in the game is is the story. And then you know if they like some of the puzzles and everything, that's really cool too. And I am happy with the puzzles and I'm proud of the puzzles I've written so far. Um, but I wanted it to be one of those things where. From simple rules, you can arise, you know, some some degree of complexity with with just having those basic um, mechanics. And then, so in a way, it's the same kind of idea of limiting myself to a certain way of doing things, kind of giving rise to more creative solutions for accomplishing, you know, my objectives. Right. Okay. That's that. That sounds good. And so then, with the eavesdrop option, you just type eavesdrop. On people, or you just take these <laughs> drop, and she then listens by the door or the window. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. The, so yeah. you know, if you if you're walking around in a hallway and she's, oh, I think I hear some voices, and you, <laughs> if you type listen at that point, then then she will so she'll give it a shot. I yeah. think I'll be I think I'll be doing that quite a lot just for the fun of it. <laughs> and, it's uh, fun. People like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, in in real life, I feel really really bad, kind of. Of course. <laughs> but it's kind of, oh, in this game, I can do it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's <laughs> kind of what we all want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just gives you permission to you know mildly act out in a way. I mean, there's nothing too too uh, you know uh, off uh, out of out of the ordinary for for people. But yeah, I mean, it's got some mild pleasure to to be had to you know you get to listen on people's conversations with with zero guilt in a way because yeah I, I feel the same you're way a, too. you're a detective you know you're investigating so yeah it's, it's yeah. for the greater cause for the greater good so. of course for the greater good <laughs> exactly and um and now you mentioned as well that you do uh fingerprint this fingerprint puzzle that's and it's also yeah. set in 1914 so I imagine the um, mm-hmm. the technology that we'll be using will be for technology back then 1914 it won't be as advanced I imagine no, not at all. Uh, in fact, so um, when I was in London, I went to the uh, Natural History Museum to see their mm. incredible, you know, rock and mineral collection. And they had a display of um, diamonds. And one of the properties of diamonds that not a lot of people know about is they'll actually fluoresce, like they'll they'll shine in like an ultraviolet light, like you've got a black light on them or something. They will actually glow. Um, so that's oh. kind of a cool, that's a cool way to sort of. To, to see what 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 is a diamond, what's not a diamond, and I mentioned in the latest issue of the, the Crimson Diamond Gazette that um, yeah, I, Nancy Maple will not be using ultraviolet light to to decide whether something's a diamond or not. It's just not something that she has available to her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a remote location in 1913, 14. So. Uh, yeah, exactly. So she's going to be doing the, the very you know basic most of, of field work, um, which. Which I find, you know, I, I'm not a geologist. I just want to, I'm a hobbyist like she is. So just very basic ways of, you know, of, of analyzing things is what, she, what I'm going to go for. Yeah, nothing too fancy. 
Cool. And um, then another question about uh, typing uh, the text parser, because at least when I don't know if I did play, I think there, I think there was one game actually that I did play, um, Trilby's Revenge, which was a text parser game. Trilby's Girl. Notes, yes. Uh, notes, that's it. Sorry, yes. yeah, Trilby's Notes. Sorry, yes. Revenge. I don't know where it got Revenge, but yes. <laughs> and actually, I was at first I was thinking, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to do this. You know, I've never played a typing game, mm-hmm. but then you know it was fine. I was able, you know, you kind of like not forget about it, but you kind of like get used to it. Yeah. That, oh yeah. yeah. So that's. Um, but then I've, I've heard other people like Dennis started just typing kind of like crazy things to see if it. Sometimes mm-hmm. they don't understand. So, do you kind of does a text parser recognize kind of like if people try to type in joke commands? Are there any joke commands <laughs> that a text parser will understand, or will it say, "Sorry, we don't understand this. Get back to the mystery at hand." <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's yeah. That's another example of, of you know really learning from watching people play the game in front of you. They'll try all kinds of things, and I do like to sometimes program in responses for you know silly things they'll try to do. I mean, I recently programmed in because everyone seems to want to climb into the wardrobes. And and things, so. so I did add something for that. You know, just like a message, a little text message, really, and. And uh, for some things, you know, like killing and punching and kicking and stuff like that, there is like a general um, catch-all, oh, you're not a violent person or you wouldn't steal or that type of thing. But it's one of those things where I would like to fill out more responses like that later on uh, through the development. Um, at the moment, I'm just kind of trying to focus on, uh, on on fixing what I already have and developing what I need to develop. But I will say sometimes I just can't resist. So, I mean, the adding, adding a, a death in the game based on what people were trying as I was watching them is something I just couldn't resist, even though that required me to do another animation and, and program a little bit. I just couldn't help myself because it was one of those things where um, it was too 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 hard to resist. Right, yeah. So I, I, I think I read somewhere if you put, I don't know if it's Colonel Bequest or another game mm-hmm. where if you type, put hand in fire, you actually <laughs> do, do that. And I think the character dies and it's like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> You wanted to put the hand in the in the fire, you know. That's this is mm-hmm. what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no, good. Looking looking forward to that then. And then mm-hmm. uh, the the music then in the game. Did you do the music yourself then, or did you have someone else help uh, add the music? Yeah. So that is the one thing that I haven't done myself is the music. Mm-hmm. And I've been really really fortunate to have two amazing musicians um, helping me with the project. And uh, so I have, um, if you listen to the introductory music, it is a, um, a rearrangement of a Canadian folk song. So a lot of the songs that I'm going to have in the game are either going to be, you know, public domain Canadian folk songs or um, sort of original music with a, still a Canadian folk song feel to them. So the introductory sequence music was actually a rearrangement of a Canadian folk song called Real Beatrice. And uh, it was the rearrangement was done by Pablo Romero, and uh, he is like an, a professional opera singer, and he's a conservatory trained musician, and uh, he's, he's you know he's been really helpful in in, in composing that. And he's going to help me do more rearrangements of other of folk songs as I need them throughout the game. And the theme song, which I don't know if you've heard yet, but the latest couple versions of the demo, which you, I guess you'll hear when you do play it, mm-hmm. when you launch the when you launch the game, there's a, there's a theme there's theme music that. It's an original piece composed by Dan Policar, and Dan is a Grammy-nominated musician, and wow. he's actually the keyboardist. He's the keyboardist for Sean Paul, which is which is crazy to me. Wow. Um, and he he, is, he loves adventure games, and he you know he loves the, the the sound of you know the sound that we're going for is kind of a bit of an authentic sound. Um, so he's he's been all about that. He's been super keen, and he did the music 
the theme music and then the dining room cutscene that you can experience in the demo he also he also composed a waltz for me and uh, cool. he's he's also been wonderful to have so yeah i mean and, and and um it's been cool because it's been a way for me to kind of give up control of one aspect of the game because i'm doing everything else it's cool to get something fresh and original into into it it kind of gives me some extra life too um and i don't know there's something about getting music created that didn't exist before specifically for you that there's something about that you know, I don't right, even know. Yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah, special yeah, no, for me. No, that's cool. So we know the music will be good, Dan. <laughs> but, <laughs> the music uh, is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, I look forward to, to hearing it. And then with uh, the, the sound effects, did you add any sound effects to the game, like uh, footsteps or anything or <laughs> uh, waterfalling um, or... Yep, yep, there are some sound effects. I, I did the sound effects. So you've got, not a lot actually right now, but there's doors opening, closing, drawers opening and closing, turn the shower on, turn the tap water on, flush the toilet. All of those are kind of very lo-fi, MIDI type of sounds that I've, I've kind of put together really simply on my own. <laughs> not being a, like a musician or a sound engineer or anything really, just trying to get that sound right or right in that wrong way that the games had back in those times. So yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, um, and so then do you... I mean, I know it's still early, but do you know how long it may take people to play play the game, or is it, is it mm-hmm. still too early to say? Well, it, n- it depends as well, I imagine. Well, I think right now uh, I've been saying it's going to be about, I'd say, depending on how thorough people are, um, generally maybe about seven hours um, to play. Good length, just, actually, these days. Which is, which is a surprisingly de- decent length for a first project. Um, yeah. Of course, it does, it does depend... Because if you just follow the um, the notebook prompts, then you'll probably get through it a bit more quickly. But if you're one of those people who gets into every nook and cranny of the game, it will take a lot longer. Yeah, um, we're adventure so it, gamers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a broad range. So I've seen, you know, I've seen people actually do let's plays of it of the demo on YouTube, and I've seen anything from, you know, and you know, 45 minutes an hour to um, a, a a Twitch a Twitch streamer. Uh, her name is Ask Alice. She decided she just saw it one day she thought oh this would be a fun demo to play before i play my regularly scheduled game that i was going to play for my for my viewers and so she starts playing the demo and she plays the demo for about three hours <laughs> wow. um, but she's not playing it straight through you know she's talking to people she's engaging with her viewers and and uh, she's playing right. through it slowly and i think she gets about 30 percent through the demo in three hours so i mean it, it completely depends <laughs> on your play style and and you know what you're doing also at the time you know so um, it, it's one of those things because it's very much a game where you're playing at your own pace. And that's something I was really focused on when developing it because I, I don't like feeling like time is passing out of my control. Sure. You, you see that in games like King's Quest 3 where the clock is actually ticking right in front of your face. Um, or, you know, Space Quest, which has some uh, you know time sequences where you don't see the timer. Um, oh, I remember those. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Like, I don't like that feeling it's very stressful for me so when i was designing this and as i continue to design it i i try to make sure that the player can enjoy everything at their own pace so that everything is you know you the in in the cutscenes, the text won't advance until you press the enter key um the game won't advance unless you explicitly do what is in the notebook for you to do so you're free to uh, explore and uh, experiment as you wish until you feel like maybe you've done everything to your heart's content and like to move the story along which is not the case in the Colonel's Bequest. The Colonel's Bequest, um, you could actually stumble on conversations that would advance the time and advance the game, which for me as a kid is, even now it is a stressful idea that you, you, you feel like you can't walk into certain rooms because then the game will have progressed and you would have 
you know, potentially miss something. So when I'm designing it, that, that's sort of one of my main things is I, I don't want people to feel like they're on somebody else's time or playing to somebody else's pace. It's just completely up to you. It's more like a book, I think, than, than you know, an interactive movie. I, I consider it more like an interactive book because you pick it up, you read as fast or slow as you like, you can put it down, you can pick it up again. Time doesn't pass unless, you know, you're, do, you're doing that specific thing that, that is required of you. And so that's why it's so, it's going to really be a broad range um, of playtime because of that. It's just, it's a matter of how, how fast or slow or how, how much time you want to take on things. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds great. I know exactly what you mean when you stumble upon a conversation and then you're like, wait, no, I'm going to this new area, but I haven't finished exploring yet. So. Mm -hmm. and, and for uh, me, that it, it actually makes me feel like I don't want to explore in mm -hmm. a funny way because then you think, well, yeah, if I explore, then I, I don't want... You know, I might want to go back to that other place and I don't want to progress things by accident. And I don't, yeah, I didn't want that feeling either. I wanted people to feel free to just explore the setting and uh, not worry too much about time passing out of their control. So, yeah, yeah for sure. I know exactly what you mean. So, <laughs> thank you for that. No, you're um, welcome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that, that sounds great. And you mentioned that the music was from the public domain. Do you, do you mm -hmm. have the website? Because that'd be very interesting. I'm sure a lot of people listening would be as well. You don't have the website by any chance, or I can include it in the show notes. Yeah, uh, well, um, so the thing is, is so the original, there, there still is one piece of music in the demo right now that is um, from this thing called uh, the Great Canadian Tune Book. And I don't even think it's online anymore. If you Google oh, okay. it, you might, you might be able to find it if you Google it. The Great Canadian Tune Book, which is a, which is a, the dozens of MIDI arrangements of uh, those folk songs, the public domain folk songs by, by a man called Barry Taylor. And that was a huge inspiration for me um, to, when, when I was first conceiving what the music was going to be like. There was this, he just put together this, you know, I think he did the arrangements himself, actually, these, these wonderful MIDI arrangements of a bunch of different Canadian folk songs. And I actually tried to get in contact with him about using them, and I couldn't find him anywhere. Uh, oh, existed. okay. So that's, so that's why I kind of have these other musicians helping me come up with new arrangements for those songs and and also original music as well because i just i, I don't want to use the music without permission so sure um, but no, if you, i understand yeah yeah but if you do want to listen if you can manage to find the great great canadian two books somewhere online you, you'll find this was this wonderful library of midi sounding folk tunes and uh that's the yeah that's where i, I i'm starting from for a lot of this stuff so I, I full credit to him and he will definitely be he is in the credits right now for the demo because it did really help me decide what I wanted it to sound like. Um, but yeah, I just, I mean, I can't find that guy, unfortunately. I made some oh, efforts over the years, but yeah. That's so if anybody does know Barry Taylor, then <laughs> yeah. get in touch. <laughs> yeah, I think he's supposed to be, um, as far as I can tell from my you know, detective work, he's supposed to be in Vancouver somewhere, or Victoria, British Columbia, potentially. Um, I, that's as far as I know. Yeah, otherwise, I actually contacted a Barry Taylor from Victoria, and he said that wasn't him. So, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. So we need Nancy Maple on the case then. <laughs> yes, we need Nancy Maple. But I mean, the thing is, is it's actually you know it's one of those things where it ended up being in my benefit because if I had been able to find him and get his permission, then I might have not not have um, you know been as open to having other musicians come in and help me with it. Sure. And I wouldn't have the original music that I have, you know, up, even up to this point. So sure. Um, it, it you know it did work out in a way for me because um, now I've got this gorgeous theme music I've got the intro music and the dining room music and um, they were they're really wonderful pieces and you know if I if I had gotten in contact with Barry Taylor easily then maybe these would well I know these things wouldn't have happened so it's not, yeah, so, it's not like I can say it's 100% of a bad thing so yeah sure okay and um, so now I'm sure one of the questions that you're probably most dreading that when people might oh, be no. asking you a lot <laughs> Uh, so oh, no, I know the question. I know the question. Can I guess the question? Uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. 
Are you going to ask me when it's going to come out? Uh, how did you guess? You're like Nancy Maple yourself. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you have a definitive release date that no. will absolutely not change? So March 21st, 2020, for example. Yeah, the, the exact time. Yeah, exact time. So, yeah. so 7 a.m. Eastern time. <laughs> uh, oh, no. do, do you have, so, so then I suppose the question I can ask is how, how far <laughs> are you into development of right. the game? So do you, you know, is there a lot left to do or is there, <laughs> or is there little left to do or, you know, how, how far, <laughs> more or less, maybe, if, if you want to answer? I can is let there you a answer. lot left to do? Yeah, that, that's a very complicated question. Is there a lot left to do? Because here's the thing. So I will say that in terms of developing how much of the story that needs to be developed, I've developed about halfway through this. I've separated the game and I've developed the game in sort of seven separate story sections. The demo is one story section. And okay. up to up to now, I finished the third one, and I'm starting work on the fourth story section. So I consider that maybe about halfway, maybe a bit more, because most of the assets that I've created, like the backgrounds and the the sprites and a lot of the animation that I am reusing, that's all that all exists right now already. So a lot of that stuff, the art is mostly done, and I need to just make maybe a few more rooms and um, a few more animations and things like that as I go. So that part I would I would like to conservatively estimate I, I'm I am at maybe halfway through development, but mm -hmm. what happens is the testing becomes an issue. So the testing get there's more testing the more game I make. So even though I have less to develop, the testing has grown and grown. And I found right. every at the end of every story section it takes that much longer to test. Um, so that's that's what happens. So it's, it's one of those things where um, it being my first project and me doing most of it on my own I. I you know I definitely don't have like a date and a time and such a watch type of situation, um, but I would I would like to say I mean maybe this is just me saying this is when I'd like it to be done. I'd like it to be done maybe around this time next year. You know, so so. around but, November twenty twenty uh, more or less. Yeah. November, so November fifteenth, for example. <laughs> no, with this. Today, oh, okay, um, I'm so no, not the fifteenth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that's my that's my my hope. Is that sure. Yeah. Then? Because you know, it's just that's just something I'd like to hope. But um, it's anyone's guess. Uh, um, and and the thing is, is yeah, it's not just the developing the game. Um, it's it's also you know talking to people like yourself and wanting to share it out to as many people as I can sure. before I launch it. And and so that's another other you know whole separate job on its own. And uh, it's just a matter of finding you know time to do everything really. And and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a bit of a tall order, but it's, so far it's been going well, and I hope to continue in this way. Oh, that's good. Now, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I tell other developers <laughs> that I that I speak to is, uh, you know, take take your time, release it when it's ready. Don't, mm -hmm. um, you know, try try not to crunch as well. From you know, from what I've heard right. from other developers, right. like go spend like twenty four hours doing it as well. Try and have a bit of a life as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know what I'd say is when it's done, when it's ready. Um, you know, as long as it's not like George or Martin, <laughs> uh, like 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know. But, but no, let's say like uh, do what, you know, work and you can and you, you'll know yourself when it's ready. But um, mm -hmm. but no, I'm really looking mm -hmm. forward to whenever it's it's ready, whenever it's done. And I, I look forward to playing the demo. Hopefully by the time this episode goes out, <laughs> so I made the demo, get my thoughts on it. But I know that from everyone I've spoken to who's played it has had very positive things to say about it. So oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, so then where can people find you then online? So where can people find out more about mm -hmm. the game? Uh, well, there is there, you know, like everything else, there's a number of places and depending on what people like to do. So I do have, um, I'm on Twitter. 
Um, if you go to the website, uh, thecrimsondiamond.com, you can find the social media link. So there is a Facebook fan page. There is um, a Twitter. That's the, There's an official game Twitter. That, that's the link. Uh, there's a link to that on the website. And then also my personal Twitter, which is uh, more of like a, of a personal thing where I do follow people and I follow back and things like that. Um, that's Julia Minamata, at Julia Minamata. Uh, the, the, just the official games one is for people who, you know, when they go on Twitter, they don't want to have like a wall of stuff that is, <laughs> you know, just all kinds of things happening in their Twitter feed. It's for people who only want to follow the game news stuff. So that's the, where I just post progress and stuff like that. Um, also on the website, you can subscribe to the Crimson Diamond Gazette, which is sort of my dev blog, um, monthly dev blog entry where I talk about you know, stuff like this, so I'd link to something like this for next for next month and uh, discuss that. Yeah, I talked to Sorsa about this and, and et cetera. And then just stuff that I've shown at and development news and things like that. Um, that can be you can subscribe to that or there's the dev, the dev blog is uh, there's a link to the dev blog on the site where you can just see all that stuff. So I've done 13 issues. So it's been, you know, just over a year um, oh. of development. So you can kind of go back and, and read, you know, what, what I've done so far or who I've spoken to and the links to all the articles um so there's yeah there's twitter facebook uh, there's that and also i'm on uh, i help admin a uh, group called the classic gamers guild and mm-hmm. it's a facebook group and it's a really active and wonderful community of yes it is like I'm, classic games yep yes no i'm there oh, as you... well i'm not as active as i should be but it, oh, it, is wonderful. A, it is a great great group everyone is really really nice there so oh wonderful i'm so glad i didn't actually know that you were on that so yeah because i haven't posted anything <laughs> I, I should i should because i oh, believe no, it no, was uh, Roberta Vaughn, who invited mm-hmm. me, uh, yep. you know, she's really, really nice, at least when I was spoken to her. And mm-hmm. um, and you've also appeared on another podcast, which we mentioned, the Classic Gamers Guild podcast, is yeah, it? Yeah, Classic Gamers Guild podcast. Yeah, Classic Gamers Guild podcast. I've been on it three times. I was on their inaugural episode. And wow. then I, I was on for an update of the Crimson Diamond. And then we talked talked about the colonel's bequest there's, there's an episode where i talk about the colonel's bequest in more detail and then i do the third time i was on it was sort of like there was their you know their year their year anniversary so i came back for that and we talked about you know um what i've done up to that point um in the year and oh, wow. so yeah it's it, they're, they're great they they, yeah, they cover yeah, a lot of different topics yeah definitely no i love that podcast myself uh so definitely encourage people to check that out and mm-hmm. and the game is uh you've you know your game is featured on a few articles including pc gamer am i right that yeah that was really really <laughs> cool because i used to have a subscription to pc gamer like the actual mm. physical magazine so that was that was awesome to to have that actually and actually um Recently, and if you read the the latest Crimson Diamond Gazette, issue number thirteen, um, I actually got, I made my local paper, which was really cool. Oh too. wow! <laughs> like a bucket list kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The one yeah, that comes to my parents' doorstep, like you know, every month or every week or whatever. So that's it. Could say yeah. see, see see parents, see mom, dad. You know. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, that's important. the stuff they know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of hard to explain what you're doing otherwise, but if they see it in a place where you know they're familiar with already, then that that I think means a lot to them. So that that was really cool. Absolutely. Um, Congratulations again. It's <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's great. So the, uh, so the website the website does also have like a YouTube playlist of let's players and things like that, or, or people who've done reviews, and also all this all the articles so far that I think that I that people have talked about, um, except for the Adventure Gamers one uh, that Laura wrote, the part two that uh, the Crimson Diamond is. Oh yes, to, yes. I have to put a link of that. That just thinks I just reminded myself that I have to add that to the website. So I do add all the media links there. So if you ever want to read back, um, yeah, on, no, that's really on handy. where it's appeared online, yeah. 
Yes. Uh, that's that's great. And also, I need to mention this in the end, every kind of interview we do, that it's also on Steam, correct? The Crimson oh, yes. Diamond yeah. Steam page. Yeah. So but people should wishlist it. It's very important, I've heard, for developers. Yes, wishlist and wish follow, follow too. Apparently, following is also important. I, I learned that at uh, an Adventure X talk. Following um, in a, social media or in... Yeah, well, on, following on... Apparently, on Steam, you can also follow developers. Oh, really? I didn't, so, I didn't know Which that. I didn't know either. Yeah, so okay. I mean, apparently, following is important. Wishlisting is important, you know, if you like what you see. It's on... The demo's on Steam. The demo's on itch.io, or you can download it direct from the website. That's there, so... A bunch of different cool. places. Cool. Well, I think we've covered <laughs> this and everything. And then the last, last question. I know this is still super-duper early, but <laughs> what do you... After you finish the Crimson Diamond and release it... Uh, do you have any other ideas? Now you mentioned that you're doing research at Microsoft for future games. Do mm-hmm. you have any other ideas? Now, I know you probably won't be able to share exactly what you <laughs> might like to do at this point, but mm-hmm. do you have any other ideas that you of games that you would like to make in the future after this, or would you like to turn this uh, into a series, you know, if it's successful? I mean, I presume it, I think it, it has a good chance of being successful. <laughs> so if, if this is successful, a lot of people like it and want more. Uh, do you... Can you see yourself making more games with Nancy Maple, or would you like to do something different, like a point-and-click adventure, or <laughs> you know, actual point, or um, I don't know? Is there anything at all that you can say, or is it still far too early? <laughs> no, I mean, like I said, I when I was going around the, the wonderful museums and art galleries in London, it, I, I started to get these ideas in my head about what I potentially want to do, and it's uh, kind of funny because it's 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 sort of the opposite or uh, the reverse of of um, when I was doing research for the Crimson Diamond because I'd already had all this stuff built and then the research was about uh, me you know rationalizing what I'd built so far but now when I go around to these places and I'm getting all these ideas it's actually at the inception of the new idea so it actually um, it's <laughs> it's kind of guiding me from the very beginning on what I potentially want to do and I see all these possibilities of of directions I'd want to take with it and it's really exciting to uh, to approach it from that angle which which is not the way that this this project started um, but yeah I mean I'd love to do another sort of detective style of game um, if Nancy you know does well then yeah I'd love to do another Nancy um, and. Um, as for interface, I do. I have to say, I do have a soft spot for that verb coin interface. <laughs> I think aesthetically, I really like it, and and the, I like uh, the possibilities. It's not. Um, it's not just one point one click. It's it's got. You always get um, a variety of, uh, of of fun options. I do like. Sure. The, I especially like the one in Return to Zork, which is like it's got little animations for each of the different. Um, okay. Possibilities. So I, I, I mean, I maybe I'll do a verb coin. I mean, or or text parser again. We'll see. Um, but those, that's kind of what I'm leaning toward. Um, and uh, yeah, for for game, we'll see. I kind of like this idea where it's geology, mineralogy based, but maybe we'll see. You know, where that takes me or what I'd like to do with it. And what it does is, I'd, I'd like to say that just having a spectacular jewel or specimen is just a really easy way to just have people interested. You know, interested in in um, characters interested in one thing that they can argue over. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, definitely. It's, uh, you know, the, the crimson jewel, the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the crimson exactly. necklace. Or, or, you know, like the, the sapphire or whatever, right? Or the, yes, yes. No, so, that sounds cool. Right well, <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to this game. I, I actually have, well, one idea, which at least for location-wise, because I as mentioned I was in Toronto and I did a touristy thing. I went to Niagara Falls. Yes. And they're absolutely spectacular. And I would love an adventure game <laughs> in Niagara Falls. Oh, my goodness. I can't, 
I, there, there is no game that I can think of that is set there. So, you know, if, if, if you do make a game there, you know, I can... I'll take about five, ten percent of the <laughs> of the of the royalties, but no, ge- generally I would love a game or something set oh. around there because I would love you know more look you know locations, more different locations. Because this you know this game is set in you know Ontario in Canada. Yes. I don't know many games that are set in, <laughs> in Canada, um, so that automatically appeals to me. But um, but yeah, if anybody wants to make a unique setting, <laughs> definitely have it. You know, I don't know how you could recreate the waterfalls though, but I'll, I'll let them figure it out. But. <laughs> oh yeah, you're not going to be tied up in those kinds of details, right? Exactly. You're, 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 yeah. You're see, exactly. <laughs> you know, just you, you figure it out. <laughs> but definitely, I, I mean, I would be there for it. I would buy it first day. If. Oh uh, uh, yes, Niagara Falls. That's so good. Yeah. That's yeah. No, I absolutely idea. loved it. So. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for joining me, Ju- Julia. It's I've been waiting to talk to you for a long time, and delighted that we finally did manage to meet. Um, and uh, so then is there uh, I'll let you lead us out then is there anything at all that you want to say that we haven't uh, covered at all to finish off okay well I'd like to say you know thank you to you and thank you to everyone who you know has talked to me about it has approached me about it give me feedback or constructive criticism of how I can make the game better Um, I appreciate all that stuff Uh, it, it helps to make the game better than it is and that's i'm interested in putting out the best possible game i can so if people do end up playing the demo and you have some you know some tips and things you like and things you think can be improved please do email me there's the email on the website um with with you know stuff that you think i could change and i do take that stuff into consideration and uh, i do incorporate a lot of a lot of uh, the feedback i get into the game so please Please do that if you feel that you have something you can offer in terms of um, just ideas and things like that. And just overall, um, you know, you know, I hope to see you online. I hope we can connect. And yeah. uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience so far. And I just look forward to, you know, seeing going to more events and, and meeting more people. And, uh, you know, even if that's not possible, just having people online who are you know motivating me and cheering me on. It really does go a long way. And I thank everyone for doing that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Keep, keep at it. We, we love what we see so far. So I'm <laughs> uh, really looking you. forward to fi- finding out more. And I'll definitely subscribe to the dev blog now as well to find out more about it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, really looking forward to the Crimson Diamond and then uh, part two set at Niagara Falls. So. <laughs> 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 but uh, thank you so much, Julia, and best of luck with it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. So that was my interview with Julia Minamata. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much once again to Julia for agreeing to speak to me. I had an absolute blast. And I really hope she did too. And I'm really looking forward to the Crimson Diamond. Uh, I'll be one of the first people to buy it when it comes out. And so that is it for this week. Next week I'll be joined once again by Laura and by Thomas and we'll be talking about the latest adventure games we have been playing. But first, we'll be closing out this episode with some more music from The Crimson Diamond, which Julia very kindly sent to me, just to give you a taste of what to expect in the game. So uh, until next week, have a great week and a great weekend, everyone. Take care.